Okay, next Sunday is um, the first of four Sundays in the season. You know, um, the church has like seasons that are somewhat different than kind of traditional seasons, but um, this season is, is called uh, Advent coming up. It's the run-up to Christmas, the four Sundays before Christmas. And Advent means uh, simply coming or impending arrival. And it's a reference in the Christian tradition to three comings or impending arrivals. It's the impending arrival of a time of distress. It's the impending arrival of God into the world. And it's the impending arrival of a better world. Um, The first of those we get, right? The coming of a time of distress. So in January, we'll have a president whose top advisor runs a major online outlet for anti-Semitism, white supremacy, and anti-immigrant rhetoric. And that seems to be like the beginning of the news. Um, In schools across the country, there are reports of more blatant than usual harassment of minorities. Um, So the themes in the Advent readings are really sober ones, and they fit a time like this. The themes in the Advent readings, meaning the readings that the church has selected for reading on the, uh, during the season of Advent, the themes are like, wake up. Uh, they're like, be alert, be sober-minded, be prepared, uh, be faithful, be courageous, resist evil, don't give in to fear, hold on to hope. So we're going to be picking one of those re- readings through the four Sundays of Advent to um, to reinforce those themes, but today I want to focus on a very practical concern that many of you have shared with me. It's how do I deal with my family members who seem to not see what I see and who are not responding to this election in the way that I'm responding to this election? Um, you know, it's, it's a, I think especially distressing uh, when, uh, for those of you whose family members share your faith, um, but they're, they're like interpreting their faith or they're translating their faith in terms of public policy in ways that you find just uh, totally mystifying and baffling. So um, that's what the sermon is about. And then on uh, uh, this evening from, I'm probably more like five to seven, and I, I'm going to break down and make dinner. So I'm going I'm to, I, I, Oceana told, taught me how to teach, uh, make rice in a rice cooker. So I'm going to do that all by myself. And I'm, I'm going to get some, some like uh, curry from um, one of those places where you buy it and then you just add chicken to it. So please come and make me feel good about making dinner for you. Um, uh, and we'll, we'll just, um, you know, commiserate together. We'll, we'll share some strategies. If people have strategies, just to unburden whatever we need to do. If you're, if you're dreading going to see your family because of the tensions that the election have, uh, have created. So at a time of distress and disorientation, and that's what many of us are in that stage of thing, just distress and disorientation. We feel like bats who've lost their sonar. Um, it's time to like access, go to the heart of faith, not the periphery, the heart. So that unshakable core has uh, also been called the Jesus ethic. Love your neighbor as yourself, for this is the law and the prophets. Something that's repeated a number of times in both the Gospels and the letters uh, in the New Testament. When in doubt, love your neighbor as yourself, for this is the law and the prophets. 
Uh, Love your neighbor as yourself is actually lifted from an obscure verse in the Torah, uh, the the, uh, Jewish law, and and probably the most obscure book of the Torah is Leviticus. This is from the book of Leviticus. And it, but it, it rose like cream in a milk pail over, over time and it became very important within Judaism and within the Jesus movement. Uh, but the added clause that comes with this uh, verse in the Jesus movement is really important. It's not just love your neighbor as yourself, it's love your neighbor as yourself for this is the law and the prophets, which in the New Testament, that's the term for the Bible. Uh, what accounts for this particular framing of love your neighbor as yourself? Well, it goes back to the origins of the Jesus movement. So people acting in accord with the law and the prophets, people armed with the Bible, as it were, is what justified the persecution of Jesus and his followers. So their distress um, was caused by a misuse of the law and the prophets of religious ideology. The the author of a third of the New Testament was before his conversion like the most guilty of of doing this. And and he persecuted the early Jesus followers on religious grounds. Uh, After amending his ways, he suffered the same treatment that he doubled out, like for decades of his life. He was beaten, he was, he was surrounded by mobs, barely escaped with his life. So this was a searing experience for the early church. So you, you know that saying, I'll never make that mistake again? You know, many of us like live our lives by, I'll never make that mistake again. Either it's a mistake that we personally made, or maybe it's like the way our parents raised us in one particular way or another. Those can be really defining things for us. I'll never make that mistake again. Well, the mistake that Paul and the other Jesus followers never wanted repeating was using the Bible to justify harming others. Jesus himself suffered in this way, so he added, for this is the law and the prophets clause to the Leviticus saying, love your neighbor as yourself. That's that's the distinctive Christian version of love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law and the prophets. See, the centerpiece of the Jesus ethic, period. Um, Whenever the church strays from this, and the church is made of, you know, human beings like us, All institutions are subject to the foibles of humanity and no less the church. Whenever the church forgets this, uh, it's it's really bad news. Um, Next year is the 500th anniversary of Luther's break from the the monopolistic power of the Roman church. the, the you know, nailing of the 95 theses that constituted the beginning of the, what we call the Protestant Reformation. This church would be roughly within that kind of uh, landscape. Um, and the watchword of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura. It's like stick with the law and the prophets. You know, do what the Bible says. Uh, and in context, that meant scripture trumps the authority of the Pope. So it was definitely an advance. But it had its problems. In Luther's Germany, the peasants, the German peasants, 
rebelled against the oppression of the landlords, the aristocrats, which they, they were like putting the squeeze on the peasants. And the peasants used Sola Scriptura, they used Luther's new rallying cry that was like a liberating thing for ordinary people, and they used it to support demands that were actually much less radical than the demands of the American revolutionaries, like uh, to be able to gather firewood in the landlord's um, uh, forests. And Luther just had a thing about people like standing up and revolting against uh, legitimate authorities based on his reading of one text of scripture. So he called for the slaughter of the peasants. Let everyone who can, I'm quoting Luther directly, let everyone who can smite, slay, and stab the peasants, if you die in doing it, well for you. A more blessed death can never be yours, for you die in obeying the divine word and commandments in Romans 13, a verse about the role of the governing authorities coming from God. So historian Carlos Eri reports, the landlords did precisely as Luther suggested, stabbing, smiting, and slaying about 70,000 to 100,000 rebels, most of them peasants. Um, that's our, it's like part of our heritage. Um, so, you know, when we criticize other religions for their extremists, we have to remember our own at the same time. So, a version of the love your neighbor saying is prominently placed, it's like, a, it's like an alternative version, it's the version of love your neighbor as yourself, for this is the law and the prophets, with a twist, and that... Um, Version with a twist comes in the Sermon on the Mount at a very um, prominent place in the Sermon on the Mount because it's right at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Right before Jesus talks about the difference between the, the narrow path that leads to life and the broad path that leads to destruction. So this is like the summary of the Sermon on the Mount. So it's, it's really there to get our attention and it goes in everything that's a kind of universal thing, in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. You can see that mirrors, love your neighbor as yourself, this is the law and the prophets, but love your neighbor is sharper, it's in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. We call it the golden rule, right? Um, in other words, the love of neighbor practiced Jesus style requires an act of the imagination. You can't do this without doing an act of the imagination. Uh, to practice this kind of love, we have to ask ourselves, how would I want to be treated if I were my neighbor? That's an act of the imagination. We picture ourselves as the neighbor. That's a profound act of identification with the neighbor, isn't it? And it's something we do within ourselves. We put ourselves in their position and say, what would I want if I were them? Now, most religious systems offer a set of rules to guide behavior. This is like stock and trade of religious systems. And it's it's a big advance for humankind to have such things. It's like better than criminality. And <laughs> it's a big advance for human societies to have uh, religions offer rules of behavior. 
But we all know that rules can be manipulated, right? This act of imagination is more powerful than any set of rules, and it applies in the subtleties that, uh, of actual human life, and it tends to resist manipulation. So the, the golden rule is based on what we now call, in our modern word for it, is empathy. You know, imagining yourself as the other, showing them the same sympathetic regard that you have toward yourself, giving them the same benefit of the doubt that you have to give to yourself in order to live with yourself, and then responding to them accordingly. So how do we apply this ethic if we're dreading going home for the holidays, for example, and that, that might just mean, you know, connecting with people in your life that you're like, I can't believe. First, especially um, for those who are part of one of the targeted uh, minority groups that this campaign is targeted, and that's a lot of groups now. Um, you're, if you're part of a targeted minority group dreading going home, I, I would say don't assume that you have to. Uh, like, don't assume that you just have to. Like, it's your Christian duty to uh, subject yourself to whatever it is that you're dreading at home. Remember the as yourself clause of love your neighbor. Um, this is not the narcissism clause. You know, that's like would be a modern reading of the clause. The love your neighbor as yourself was like, you, you have to take care of yourself. And you think of it like the Bible is written in a communal mindset. In a communal mindset, you know, the job of a family or a community is to like look out for everyone. That's, that's what communities are for. Everyone does better in a community because we're all looking out for each other. The, the, you know, the trees in a forest thrive because there's this network of roots and they, they communicate with each other when one is attacked. And they, you know, they do, trees do much better in a forest than they do isolated in suburbs. That's what a community is about. If one member has an immediate need of community and you, you hear about it, you, your first response is, well, you assume that those who are closest to them will like be there to meet the need first. But even more, uh, the community is counting on every person in the community to practice self-care, right? Because, I mean, I don't know if you're thirsty or if you're hungry. I mean, it's up to you to, like, recognize your own thirst and get a drink of water or if you don't have water to ask for water like you, we all have to do our part as individuals for the sake of the community whose job is to make sure that everyone prospers and thrives and survives so think of it this way if you have a hard time uh, you know, like practicing self-care well think of it like your community your family is counting on you to care for yourself um, and that's especially important when they're in, your needs are invisible to them for whatever reason. They can't see what you need. Well, that especially then, you need to care for yourself. And you do that as the member of a community. So I'd say it's perfectly in keeping with the Jesus ethic uh, for you to say, you know what? Um, it's too early. I'm too raw. Uh, the, the chance of closing the gap with my family, um, you know, this Thanksgiving, you know, three weeks after the election, it's just too low right now. I, I'm, I'm going to skip Thanksgiving, and I think you could do that with a, with a clear conscience. Um, I think you also have the option, we all do, 
to establish some ground rules for interactions with families. It's one of the hardest things to do as part of a family because all families have rules. They're not explicit often. And, you know, but family rules change. And one of the reasons they change is other family members introduce a new rule. And that's always a little bit challenging, but it's part of the process of being a family. So you could say, you could say, you know, I'm, I'm really hurting over this election. If you can't respect that and be considerate, I'll have to miss this time. You know, you're, you're laying out a ground rule for your participation. You could say, this is actually too big a deal for me to ignore when I'm home. I need to tell you how this election has affected me but I'm only willing to do that if you're willing to listen without pressuring me with your views. Can you do that? If so, I can come home uh, for the holidays. This is one of the hardest things to do in families is to lay down those ground rules, but it's really important for families uh, for that to happen. Uh, and then second thing, so that's the first thing, if you're, especially for those who are in a targeted minority group. And then the second thing is maybe especially uh, for those in, in the majority um, culture on these issues. You're not part of one of the targeted groups. And what I would say the golden rule is um, urging us to do is to take the memory of a targeted person with you home for the holidays. Yeah, we don't need to subject the targeted minority person to your family. They got enough on their plate, right? Oh, would you come home for me for the holidays so I could just show them like how hard it is, you know? No, no, no. But you can take the memory of, of a, I would say a single person that you have a, a personal connection with who's in one of the targeted groups. Take that per person in memory with you home for the holidays and don't forget them when the family talks about the election. So, you know, if I were a targeted person with white or straight friends, what would matter to me most is not the support they give me in person, but whether or not they remember me when I'm with other majority uh, uh, people, especially those who are deaf to my concerns. So like the, the burden of interacting with majority people who are, who are you know, take, making moves in ignorance that are harmful, or sometimes not in ignorance that are harmful to other people, is other majority people interacting with them. So that's the kind of act of imagination we have to, have to practice. Um, I, had a, I had actually a powerful experience of this that I, I think was actually mediated by the Holy Spirit. Like it was a it was a total God thing. Um, years ago, when I led an evangelical church and I was in the process of rethinking LGBT, it was quite, quite down the road of that um, process, but I hadn't worked out all the implications in a way that I felt I could communicate clearly to everyone. I was still working out some of the details in my own mind. Uh, in that period, there's a lot of tension in the church and an influential couple in the church uh, set up a meeting with me. Uh, they were distressed about my evolving views because I was trying to be candid with people as they, as they evolve. Uh, and they asked me point blank if I would do a gay wedding. 
you know, when someone like sets up a meeting and, you know, to ask a question like that, it's like a big deal for a pastor. Um, and since I hadn't actually crossed that line yet, I was tempted to give like a technically correct answer. I love these people. I didn't want to you know, add to their distress, which is right in front of me. And they were major contributors, like tens of thousands of dollars a year. In the split second before I responded to, the, to their, you know, you, someone asks you a question and then you like have a conversation in your mind in a split second, you know, and, and then you answer and you know, the brain is amazing. Um, in that split second, uh, the ghost of Lisa Ruby entered the room. Yep, I know. But uh, this, was, this was like a living apparition. I mean, it, it, was, um, it was vivid. I, I almost saw her, but I, I swear it, I've, it was like a shimmering kind of thing. Like, through the door, I, I, in my office, it was over here. And Lisa Ruby is an attorney, and she said, don't mess with me attorney and she can separate the wheat from the chaff and she's exactly what I needed in that moment to uh, respond uh, clearly and I, I with Lisa sitting there <laughs> not knowing that she was there transmigrating I said I have to my answer to that question is I have to acknowledge that the logic of my position is that I will perform such a, a, a wedding and that was probably the first time I'd said that in that kind of a, uh, of a context. And that was, that was that. You know, it doesn't matter much if we're allies in the presence of our friends if we fudge behind closed doors. It really doesn't matter much at all. Where it really counts is with our family members and our majority, you know, uh, people, uh, friends and loved ones. Uh, and those of us in the majority really do have an extra responsibility to speak up. Part of waking up is speaking up. Um, it's not a virtue to keep the peace when the peace is at the expense of the children of God, of oppressed people. It really isn't. You know, for that we need wisdom and we need, need nerve. You know, the, 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 the nerve, the courage of following Jesus is the courage to bear witness. Um, and, you know, this is not like, you know, before you're burned at the stake. It's like when I, when I made my uh, uh, renewed faith commitment uh, as a young Jesus freak at age 19, the hardest thing for me was going back to my parents. My mother attended church. My dad wasn't opposed to it attending church, but it was really hard for me to go back to them and say, you know, something happened and I've, I've had like a, a, a thing and I'm, I'm really interested in Jesus now. And I, I was nervous about it. My palms were sweaty. There's just, that's, and that's the heart of faithfulness to Jesus. It's the willingness to bear witness when kind of the social matrix around you is like, don't, 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 don't say a word, just shut up. Don't rock the boat. Um, you know, we need wisdom and we need nerve, but we're not going to get the wisdom if we don't work up the nerve first. 
So that's the most important thing, is the nerve. Uh, to calling it courage is too much, but nerve for, for sure. Um, and so, you know, maybe you don't need to speak with your 94-year-old grandmother who, who's hard of hearing or, or, or your dad who just is just reeling from the, a fresh cancer diagnosis or something. But you don't get the wisdom if you don't start with a little courage, which means the willingness to speak up. Um, the reading today uh, reinforces this. It's the, if you remember, Annie read it so well. Um, it's the Jesus on the cross with the two thieves next to him. And in the reading, there's a group of bystanders who are just quiet. There's some religious elite leaders who are throwing religious accusations against Jesus. There are Romans who are throwing their kind of Roman accusations and mockery against Jesus. And then one of the thieves on, next to Jesus on the cross joins in. <laughs> you know, he's like, you, you're like, oh, he's like, you know. And, and the only person who speaks up is the other thief. And he says, what? What is crawling in your pants? I mean, we, we, we deserve to be, to be crucified. This man is innocent. And can you imagine Jesus as a human being who's been deserted by all of his friends? Finally, someone speaks up in the presence of the opposition. And Jesus, I think out of just sheer love and thanksgiving to the man, said, today you will be with me in paradise. I'm, I'm going to buy you a beer. I, you know, <laughs> this is going to be good when this is all over. Don't argue politics, I would recommend. Um, bear witness is, is what the, the Christian responsibility is. Uh, tell what targeted people in your life are going through knowing that the founder of a white supremacy website is now the top advisor to the man who will soon be president, you know? You don't need a lot of facts. You need like two or three. I recommend that one as like your, you know, like if you, you can't get beyond that, you know? Don't relitigate the election um, and people's voting decisions. You know, assume, as I thought uh, Lisa did a really great job last week, she was bearing witness to her pain and suffering, but, you know, she said, uh, you know, they're, 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 I, I appreciate the fact that there may be people who didn't vote for my candidate who, who had their reasons for it, and, and, and you did that with integrity within your mind, and I, and I believe you, but you need to stand up for me now. And I think that is the message, actually. You just say, well, you know, we're, we're not relitigating the, the election or how you voted or anything like that, but just call them to stand with you in standing uh, with your friends. Um, you know, if, if the campaign talk of creating a registry for all Muslims, that was the actual campaign talk, a registry for all American Muslims, if that actually materialized, Tell them, well, you're going you're gonna to sign up for the registry, and they should too. And you could go together to sign up for it, because Jesus would be the first in line to sign up for that registry. He'd become a Muslim in order to uh, identify with that uh, vulnerable minority. Um, don't make it about the vote, in other words. Make it about the what now. 
And then the third, so you know, if you're in a minority position, thinking about going home. Second is like, if you're in the majority, you're going home, strategies for that. And then third, it probably applies to all of us in different ways, uh, express your emotions directly. But always, if you can, respecting the human dignity of others as those who bear the image of God. So, you know, attempts to hide or suppress the emotions stirred by this election will only put you in a no-win game called whack-a-mole. You know, whack-a-mole, you know, the thing pops up, boom, and then it pops up and somewhere else. And, you know, we treat our emotions like that. We don't want to deal with them. They pop up, boom, and we think that's done, and then they just pop up. And another setting against a different person, a different version, it's just whack-a-mole. It's a stupid game. So just express your emotions. I'm feeling distressed, I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling afraid, whatever it is. And there are seven universal emotions, and each one has a little family around it, but seven universal emotions. There are seven actual facial expressions that correspond to these emotions in every culture. The expressions for the emotions are the same. So they're like baked into us, these emotions. Anger, fear, sadness, disgust, enjoyment, surprise, and contempt. I want to just note the, the first and the last, anger and contempt, and then we'll deal with the fear uh, at the end. Caroline's going to lead us in a little meditation for the fear part. But um, anger and contempt, I want to handle these together because they, they feel similar, but they're very different. Um, starting with contempt, so the... Um, uh, John Gottman did some research on, on married couples and like extensive videotaping, you know, thousands of couples breaking down the videotapes over years, classifying the interactions and then following up the couples to see who stayed, stayed together and who, who divorced. And he was able to get to the point where he could train someone within to observe a couple they'd never met before interacting for 10 minutes and predict within a problem. Uh, likelihood of 94% whether they were going to be divorced in five years or not. And what they found was couples who were angry with each other and had a lot of open conflict were not necessarily at all in danger of divorce, but the toxic killer thing that was like, oh, this is a bad sign, was contempt. The curling of the lip is the universal uh, expression of contempt, but it comes out in many subtle ways. So isn't it interesting in Romans 14, which we've been kind of working out to deal with uh, disputable matters, and I think a lot of the issues that are being raised by this campaign are not disputable matters. Black Lives Matter is not a disputable matter. The dignity of human beings is not a, dis a disputable matter. Putting pressure on minorities is not a disputable matter. But Paul, when he was talking about these issues, he was, he was talking about a church which was, had a lot of like intense cultural, social, theological conflict. And he said, he basically said there's a, like a liberal side and a, and a conservative side. And to the liberals, he said, your sin is contempt. For the conservatives, it was judgment. For the liberals, it was contempt. Now, I think anger can be expressed with full respect for the dignity of the other person. Uh, when we're angry, we're saying, 
what you're doing is like hurting me or people I love and you, um, you have, you have, you're a, a human being who has agency and power. That's a, that's a recognition of the, uh, the dignity of the other person that you're angry with. Please stop. Um, but contempt does not recognize the dignity of the human being we're talking to. The nature of contempt is dismissing the other person. You don't matter. I'm writing you off. And that's like a passive-aggressive form of anger. And it's, it's very understandable if someone is in a minority status expressing that, that contempt. Um, that's, a, that's a symptom of the, of the oppression in a sense. But especially if you're not in that, in that category, watch out for contempt. We are called to oppose anything that threatens human dignity. That's our call as disciples of Jesus. And that includes our own contempt. Uh, there is such a thing as liberal groupthink contempt that conservatives feel all the time, or it's sometimes it's not so much even in this election, it's not liberal conservative, it's like class. You know, uh, elite or people who lived in center cities or on the coast or those who are rural or whatever, um, you know, Ann Arbor is the most educated city in the country by some polls. In, in, in some polls, it, we're number two, and Ann Arborites are like, we should be number one. You know, they, <laughs> so ask anyone that you know who lives in Ann Arbor who doesn't have a college degree if they don't feel that like pride as a, as a kind of contempt you know, the, the pundits and the, and the observers throughout the election were repeating this mantra, just demographic mantra. Democrats have the support of white college-educated uh, college women. Republicans are strong with white non the white non-college-educated voter. That just was repeated over and over. It was just a demographic fact. But if you didn't have a college education, you heard that through the lens of this kind of liberal groupthink contempt that you've been feeling all your life, and you're like, screw that. Like, I'm, I'm done with that. That's, our, that's the natural human response to being dismissed, is I will just dismiss you right back. So, um, and the, the pundits and the people who were writing the newspapers and saying this stuff were all college-educated people. So that's, that's just a, that's the thing we've got to pay a little attention to. Contempt always fuels disconnection and it, and it um, results in a mutual dismissal. And then we're nowhere. Anger is different than contempt, though. Um, some families avoid open expressions of anger. Some revel in it, you know. But if you're part of a family that avoids open expressions of anger, um, anger will tend to be indirect or passive-aggressive in your family system. Because it's such a powerful emotion, many families are afraid to express it openly. Uh, but families are not actually harmed by direct, non-hostile expressions of anger. You know, Paul said, be angry, but do not sin. It's like, yeah, be careful with your anger, but be angry. Sometimes people impose anger to impose their will. You know, that's, that's not so helpful. Unless your will is, unless you're saving somebody or, you know, standing up for justice or something. But, but, but anger can be used as a bullying emotion. 
But there's such a thing as revealing your anger. You know, think about it like I'm, I'm going to reveal my anger to my family members because they're my family members and I, I want them to know me. Uh, if you're angry, say so and explain what's behind it. Uh, it's probably ignorance that keeps your family members from their ignorance of what you're experiencing and what your friends are experiencing that's, that's behind they're not getting your anger. So help them. Explain it. Um, we have to do this in married life all the time or close relationships. We're angry with each other, but we, we have to say, well, why am I angry? And, and what's my ask of the other person? And, and explain the anger. We can't just read each other's minds. Usually it's the threat to the human dignity of others that you care about that is the source of your anger. So good, explain that. That's healthy, say it. Um, so fear, though. Fear, you know, um, fear is like the last thing, and then I'm just going to say a couple things about it, and then Caroline's going to lead us in a little um, uh, post-sermon meditation on this. I think probably the Psalm uh, reading, Psalm 42 is the reading in the, in the lectionary, actually. Like, the lectionary is just amazing uh, today. Um, but um, it's really good to get our grounding in God before we go home for the holidays, or we engage in this kind of a conversation. Um, the purpose of fear is to get our attention, but if we don't get some God comfort when we're, you know, the fear's got our attention, it can like narrow our focus and it can actually make us stupid where the human brain is much less creative, for example, when, when it's afraid. Um, now there's a lots of don't be afraid talk um, going around um, and a lot of it's just Pollyanna. You know, it's false, the false comfort of those with little to fear given to those with lots to fear. And that's like, you know, if you're getting that kind of Pollyanna uh, comfort, it's, it's useless. Just, just reject it. <laughs> but that is not the don't be afraid talk of, of the Bible. Um, the Bible is written by oppressed people. Um, the, the, the don't be afraid talk of the Bible is, okay, we're all going to have to jump out of this airplane. Let's not be afraid. Or we're going to walk through the fire. Let's not be afraid. We're going you know, to walk through the flood. Let's not be afraid. We're going to have to actually walk on water now. Don't be afraid. That's the don't be afraid talk of, of the Bible. So, um, and we need it when we're uh, dealing with this kind of a, this kind of a like, very present to us in our personal space uh, experience of fear. So, Caroline, you want to uh, lead us in that meditation? Then we'll go on. Is Caroline Kill who leads our uh, middle school uh, group and is uh, a good person. Okay. So it's, it's Psalm 46, um, and it's, it's of God's defense of his city and people. So it's a song, but we're going to do it as a meditation. And there are three occurrences of the expression sila, which is present throughout the Psalms. And it may mean something like stop and listen. So what I'm going to say is pause and think of that. Um, and then as I say that, please take a deep breath in and out. Um, so still your mind. Focus on the words you hear and how they land on your heart. Turn your eyes slightly downward. You may close your eyes or keep them focused on a point close by. Relax your body. 
Breathe through your nose with your mouth closed and jaw relaxed. When you are distracted, be without judgment. Then bring your attention back to the words. Lord God of Israel, I pray for your blessing on this meditation. Be with us as we descend with the mind into the heart. Psalm 46. God is a shelter and a strength for us, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we fear not when the earth breaks apart, when mountains collapse in the heart of the seas, its waters rage and foam, mountains heave in its surge. Pause and think of that. A stream, its rivulets, make God's city glad, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be overthrown. God will help her when the morning dawns. Nations roar and kingdoms collapse. He sends forth his voice and earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, a fortress for us, Jacob's God. Pause and think of that. Go look upon the acts of the Lord, what awesome things he has done on earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still then and know that I am God. Let go and know that I am God. I loom among the nations. I loom upon the earth. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Pause and think of that. And once more, be still and know that I am God. Amen. <laughs>